we continue on with our series, as I said earlier, and we're in uh, chapter, we're, this is part number five of our install, installation of Esther, and today we're going to be talking about sleepless in Susa, and uh, you know, it's trouble when you can't sleep. Uh, sleeping is the worst, and all of us can identify with those times. Uh, some of us can sleep just like that, but there's a few of us that just have trouble sleeping, and we don't like it when we can't sleep. And sometimes we get even more frustrated when we can't sleep. Uh, if you read the Pulse this week, you'd see that uh, one night, this actually this past week, I'd finally fallen asleep, and uh, Cindy dropped something, and it woke me up. And I was a little irritated, but I was trying not to be irritated. And she said, don't be irritated, don't be irritated, go back to sleep, ignore it. And, and I did, and then uh, yesterday I actually said, so why didn't I get a text? You, if you saw the Pulse, that why didn't you text me tell me what you actually dropped? And and she says she can't remember. So I don't know what that was, but there was a bang, and I worked hard not to get irritated. I shouldn't have got irritated, and I didn't. I was able to go back to sleep. But again, it's that desire to get sleep, and when we're not sleeping, it can mean something, uh, or it means nothing. But in this case, for Sam and Annie, it means love. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Sleepless in Seattle. You call the radio station? Christmas Eve. He phones in one of those radio call-in shows. Tells them that his dad needs a new wife. And the shrinkette practically forces the guy onto the phone and says, Tell me, what was so special about your wife? Well, Dr. Marsha feels God. It was like magic. magic. Sleepless in Seattle? That's what you call them on the show because he can't sleep. And now 2,000 women want his number. Here's Sleepless in Seattle. You're the most attractive man I ever laid ears on. The guy could be a crackhead. Actually, he sounded nice. You know it's easier to be killed by a terrorist than it is to get married over the age of 40. That's not true. That statistic is not true. That's right. It's not true. But it feels true. What if I never meet him? What if this man is my destiny and I never meet him? Your destiny can be your doom. I want to meet him. Dad, read this, read this. Uh, that's what I think of that movie. One more time. Uh, 1993. I don't know how many times I had to watch that, but uh, I did. And, uh, you know, there's a lot going on there. Uh, so anyway, but uh, guys, if, if you haven't had to experience that movie yet, uh, I want to do you a favor. I usually don't do this uh, when I show a movie, uh, video clip, but uh, I am going to do this this time just to save you guys will owe me. But here you go. By the telescopes. I saw you in the street. Are you Annie? Yes. You're Annie? This must be yours. I'm Jonah. This is my dad. His name's Sam. Hi, Jonah.
We better go. But what I've done for you guys is now you don't have to watch that movie. That was the end. So it started on the beginning and the end. So now I just saved you an hour and 45 minutes. So you owe me. But anyways, Jonah, Sam, and Annie go live happily ever after and la da 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 But, um, you know, so sleeplessness can sometimes be something good. Sometimes it can be something bad. Often it means something, which brings us back to sleepless in Susa. Now, we're looking at Esther, and Esther, if you read the whole book, you're going to find that there's no mention of God. It alluded to, but no mention of God. And uh, we're going to find today that Sleepless in Susa uh, ended up being something good for some people and something bad for others. And Sleepless in Susa is, again, this idea of sleep, and it doesn't seem like much is happening, but God seems to use that. And all through Esther, we see God's fingerprints behind the scenes. We don't see him out in front, but we see that he's definitely doing something. So we need to realize that Esther is a book full of surprises without any obvious miracles. And many of us, that's the life we live. We've decided to say yes to Jesus, have him be a part of our life. And uh, yes, there's surprises, but there aren't these, you know, parting the Red Sea kind of miracles. But God is at work, and that is the beauty and wonder of the book of Esther, is you see God ordering the steps of all the people involved in that story. Now, some of you may say, well, you know, I really don't see it, but the reality is there is a force. You can see this force, and we're going to say it's God moving through this, through the story of Esther. And that reminds me of my most favorite place, or one of my most favorite places on the planet, is Mount Washington. It's the tallest mountain in the northeast, and uh, here it is. So we're in the White Mountains, and there it is, and there's the top, and uh, you can see it gets pretty windy up there. And you don't see the wind. See the wind? No, I don't see the wind, but I definitely see a lot of effect of the wind. One time a friend and I uh, hiked up there at this time of year, like it looked like that, and for the last quarter of a mile, uh, we had to crawl on our hands and knees to get to the top. Uh, we got to the top, we went, wow, this is cool, and we just left. We wanted to get out of there. It was miserable. But uh, that's Mount Washington, and the wind is blowing. You can't see it, but the effect is there. And that's the same thing when it comes to God being a part of our life and a part of what is going on around us. So as we think about God working behind the scenes, as we think about God's providence, God has a plan. We've talked about uh, being in a boat and the boat is going from point A to point B. That is God's plan for the world. And you and I have a time period on that boat. And we can move all around in that boat. We can do all kinds of things. But God has that boat going from point A to point B. It's going to get there. And we have some room to do our kind of thing. And uh, we want to, in a sense, lean in and be a part of God's plan, God's story. And he gives us that ability. And as we've looked at Esther, we've seen she's decided to lean in. Uh, Mordecai's leaned in. We also got this bad guy, Haman. Uh, I think last week I mentioned, how do people respond when they hear Haman? 
Ooh, so you can do it. Hammond, hiss, hiss, yeah, right. Now, don't do that the rest of the service. I know I've opened myself up for that, but this Hammond is a bad guy, and then you got Xerxes, who's kind of like just an inept leader, and uh, he kind of goes with the flow of everything and really doesn't seem to be exercising much leadership. So when we think of God's province, when we see, wow, this is a little bit like my life, I don't have these super miracles taking place, but it's obviously that God's working in my life, or I want to see that God's working in my life. Uh, we need to, in a sense, be aware, but not despair when it comes to God's providence in our life. So we need to be aware of what God's doing. We need to be aware of God's fingerprints on things, but not become uh, just so captivated by it. It just takes all the joy and all the anything out of our life. It's like uh, draining us. We sang about uh, being in a dry place, being in a desert. And if you've said yes to Christ, even though the world may seem crazy, we don't have to be in a dry place. We can see his providence working, and we can realize that God is at work in our lives. He's up to something. He wants to do something. He's a part of our lives, and we either can lean in and be a part of it, like Esther had that choice, or not. So back to um, chapter 6. If you want to follow along, uh, it's chapter 6, page 347 in that Bible in the rack. Uh, the verses will be up on the screen also. If you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible as a gift from Seneca Community Church. It is so important that you have regular exposure to God's Word, like a daily basis. So having a Bible, you need that. And also there's that Version app. It's free and uh, very thankful for Life Church that just provides that free. You can have your Bible on your phone, any tablet, any electronic device, and so you can bring it with you anywhere you go. So it's important to have regular exposure to God's Word, not just on Sunday morning, uh, but regularly, not just Sunday morning in a group, every day having exposure to God's Word and letting it change our hearts. So beginning of verse 1, we read, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It's amazing. The king is having a sleepless night. I'm sure there's lots of reasons for him not to sleep. Lots going on in the emperor, empire. We've talked about him trying to invade Greece, and that didn't go well for him. It was a disaster. And uh, so there's a lot going on, and he can't sleep. And it's interesting that this is what he goes for. Um, he could have done anything. He could have gone visited one of the ladies in his harem. He could have done, could have gone seen the queen. But he is going to try to fall asleep, try to take his mind off things by reading the chronicles of uh, his kingdom. What's happened to him and uh, what has he been about? So uh, as he started to read this in verse 2, we read, it was found recorded that, there, that Mordecai had exposed Bigtha. You always need a guy named Bigtha around. Exposed Bigtha and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. You remember, uh, this is probably four or five years ago in the story of Esther, that uh, Mordecai had overheard these two characters talking about assassinating the king. And uh, he lets the king know it, finds out that it's true, and they're gone, but he saved the king's life. And usually when you save a king's life or a president's life, you think you'd at least get a gift card to Starbucks or something, and Mordecai gets nothing. But we don't see that's kind of not really rattled his life. He just kind of moved on. And so King Xerxes is being reminded of this. 
And this is what he says. He says, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendant said. Wow, this is a special moment. This is something is going to change now. The king discovers that Mordecai, who had saved his life, nothing had been done for him, no reward, no recognition. And uh, we're seeing this all play into the providence of God. Sleepless night means something. There's a point to this. Uh, Sometimes when I have a sleepless night, sometimes I'm like just uh, awake. Sometimes I go, wait a minute, I should be praying for something. And sometimes I pray for something. Sometimes I get up and maybe start working early. I try to identify a sleepless night as meaning something. Sometimes it's as simple as I'm not trusting God. Something's going on in my life, and I need to be aware of it, yes, not stick my head in the sand, but I'm too anxious about it. And then so sometimes when I can identify that, that means I crack open my Bible. um, I look at a psalm, read a psalm, and that seems to unbelievably calm my heart, and then I'm able to drift back off to sleep. Um, So sleepless nights, they they mean something. And for Mordecai, uh, he, I mean, for... uh, King Xerxes, something's going on with this. God is going to use this. And it's interesting, again, that uh, the ordinary events of life are actually connected to God's purposes. Uh, Sometimes just the most basic things. Uh, Sometimes you're driving someplace and you get a flat tire or you get your car, something happens and uh, it delays you. And all of a sudden you drive down the road a little farther and there was an accident. And sometimes I think uh, God saved you from that accident. God is working behind the scenes, doing things, ordinary things uh, that uh, actually show that he's showing up in his life. It's just not the, the wow moments. It's some of the most basic things in life are helping us. Even just a thought coming across our mind about someone and we reach out to them and all of a sudden we find they were in a, in a place of need and we go, wow, God must have laid that person on my heart. So ordinary events are actually connected to God's purposes. So for Xerxes, sleepless night. He just happens to decide that he wants to look at the record books. And it just so happens that the record book that he gets, again, he's been king for a while, is the one with the story about Mordecai. And uh, this starts to set things in motion. Um, What's also interesting is even sinful, foolish, or flippant behavior can be used by God to bring about his eternal plan. Sometimes you find that in your own life. You do something that wasn't wise. And God in his graciousness takes that moment. And when you uh, look to him, he can take it and use it and make it into something good. Um, So that can happen in our life. Um, Sometimes God uses people that just have no room for God in their life. We could go back to Nebuchadnezzar. We could look at King Xerxes. We really don't think that he's a God follower in the Old Testament. But uh, God can use just about anybody to bring across his plans. And we see this um, unfolding in this situation. Um, So we also, so we see that God's providence is in motion. It's happening around us. Uh, We also uh, realize that uh, God counters the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Again, we could go back to the story of Nebuchadnezzar. There's a moment where um, all of a sudden uh, he's brought to account for his pride. And we don't have time to get into that, but God does that often, counters the proud, gives grace to the humble. And we're going to see that with Mordecai. We're going to see that with Haman. Things start to change. I need to realize that God can't stomach arrogance or pretense. Believe me, he'll put those upstarts in their place. 
And sometimes you and I take a little bit of joy when that happens. Don't take too much joy. There's another proverb that says, if you take too much joy, even when someone's getting what they deserve, God will look back at you and you might get something going on in your life. So, but this idea that uh, God counters arrogance, he does not like arrogance because a person who's arrogant is saying, you know, what's happening in my life, my abilities, my power, my whatever it is, is self-created. And God's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's me created. You may not know this, but you can't take credit for all those things. Even uh, God's uh, number one angel got this thinking in his mind, and that was Lucifer. That was Satan, uh, the devil, and he was uh, the number one angel. And he fell because he started to think, hey, I can do what God's doing. I'm just as good as him. So you and I want to watch out for that. Now, this next uh, statement isn't in your notes. Uh, pride is always looking down, which means it's impossible to see what is above. So if you've said yes to Christ, if you're trying to grow in your relationship with God, and you've got some pride acting in your life, you're always looking down at people. You're not going to be, in a sense, looking up to God. Uh, pride gets in the way of our relationship with God. If we've said yes to Christ, it does not cancel our relationship with God, but it definitely puts static on the line. We can go back to Samson, and we can see that he had a pride, a pride issue, so that when he ran out the last time, uh, you know, and he got caught, he did not realize uh, the spirit wasn't a part of his life at that moment. And uh, that's, again, Old Testament, New Testament's a little different, but uh, when you and I are looking down on people because we feel so good about ourselves, it's impossible to see what God is doing. It's impossible for us to look up. Let's continue on to verse 4. Of chapter 6, the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. Isn't this amazing? This is unbelievable. Uh, king's up in the night, sleepless in Susa, reads, has this section read to him about Haman, and meanwhile, Mordecai is going in to have Haman taken out. Uh, he, almost, he can't make up this stuff. It's just happening. Haman has been proud for just too long, and, and it's, it's going to start to come undone. And uh, it's, again, it's just, it's just amazing how this is all happening. And in our own lives, we can, we can find things go on and on and on, and all of a sudden, God starts to unfold his plan. His plan starts to show up in real time in our lives. Uh, sometimes we try to take things into our own hands. We don't wait. We're not patient. We talked about that last week. I know for uh, Cindy and I, as we were looking for a new place so my parents could come and live with us and they could have their own apartment, it took a year and a half to find that place. We just kept looking and looking. We made a couple offers. They just didn't seem to come together. Then one Friday, I just happened to find a place online. Wow, this looks perfect. Went down there Friday afternoon, and on Monday or Tuesday, our offer was accepted. And that's how quick it happened. And we were like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. So this idea that God is in motion, and sometimes it seems like it's taking forever. So we got this set up. It's starting to unfold this way. Uh, obviously, Hanum, Ham, Hammond was up early and got to the palace first and was waiting outside to see if he could get an audience with the king. He hadn't come in to see if the scepter was extended to him. He was just hanging out there. And uh, the king asked, is there anyone out there? And all of a sudden, here comes uh, the king, or uh, Hammond. His attendants answered, Hammond is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Hammond entered, the king asked, 
What should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? There's pride for you, my friends. He's so into himself, he can't think of anyone else. He thinks it's him. So he starts to think, what would I like? What would I like if I was going to be honored? Because it must be me. He's asking me, so I am going to tell him what I would like. And I can't wait for this to happen. So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then he let the, ro- then, then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to the one the king's most noble princes, let them let the robe, the man, the king delights into honor and lead them on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. I could see Hammond in the throne room kind of like getting his arms ready for somebody to kind of like slide that robe on the back of him. And uh, he's all excited. And the king then says, go at once, the king commanded Hammond. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Just think if you could articulate your dream for your life and there's this nemesis in your life and you have this dream And your nemesis gets the dream, gets the answer to the dream. This is what's happening. And again, remember, Xerxes was the king. You didn't question the king. You didn't say, yeah, but you you didn't do anything. You went ahead and did what he said. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed, robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. I can just see, you know, Mordecai wanting to be sick to his stomach. I just have to do this, and he does this. The tables are turning. And what's very interesting in uh, the next verse, I first show you this phrase. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's state. It's interesting. Mordecai was a humble enough guy that when this was over, this show was over, he walked around and or got led around on the king's horse and all this stuff. He goes back to work because the king's gate place was the place where Mordecai worked. He had some kind of government official job, probably not wicked high standing, but a little bit. And so he went right back to work. So it's just, again, it shows the humility. Mordecai didn't let this go to his head. He didn't go all of a sudden have a big party. Shouldn't have been a bad idea, but he just goes back to work. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zerus, his wife, and all his friends everything that happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zerus, said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You surely will come to ruin. We've talked about the history that exists between Mordecai and Haman from way back when the Israelites were leaving Egypt and were on their way to the promised land. Then we had that little episode with Saul uh, versus uh, a person that was a a forefather of uh, Haman and how that all went. 
And now we have it here. This has just happened. It's, it's kind of like a defining moment for them. And so this is just this is just horrible. Uh, you know, Haman has, has people around him who are telling him the truth. Last week he said, you know, you don't want to have yes people around you. In this case, uh, Zaris uh, is a good wife. She shares exactly what she thinks is going on. Uh, he hears it. He knows what's happening. And before he can really digest it, verse 14 happens. While they were still talking with him, the king's unit arrived and hurried Hanan away to the banquet Esther had prepared. It's interesting. His life is coming unraveled. It had come all together. Now it is coming unraveled. And the question we have to ask ourselves as we think about Haman is Haman does reflect us a little bit. You say, how does Haman reflect us? Well, we sometimes have some of the same thoughts that Haman has. The difference is we don't have power, the money, the position to execute on them, to do them. Haman does. So Haman does his dream. You and I can't always do that. So if we have somebody that really bugs us and we really were honest, wouldn't mind seeing them just disappear, we, we, we can't be a part of that. It's deep in our hearts. But Haman can get away with it. Haman can do these things and no one says anything. So what's he going to do with this distress? What do you and I do with this distress that comes into our lives? Now, we've got a choice. Do we lean into God or do we pull back from him? What do we do with that distress? Do we let that distress help us to take our next step in our relationship with God? Or do we kind of like say no way and pull away? Paul writes about this in the Newer Testament. He writes, distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. Not that we lose our salvation, but we live as we have a relationship with God. And it reflects the way we live, our behavior. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets and end up on a deathbed of regrets. Every time there's some stress in our life, every time there's some uncertainty in our life, every time there's just heartache in our life, we have to decide what are we going to do with that? Are we going to lean in towards God or are we going to lean away from God? That distress, that feeling is really a warning light on the dashboard of our lives. And we've talked about this idea before, that uh, when a warning light comes off on your dashboard, some of us are like, oh, no. But actually, you should say, oh, yes. Because if that dashboard light didn't come on, you wouldn't know something was wrong with your car. One of our cars burns a little extra oil. So every, I don't know, five, four, 5,000 miles, we have to put a little bit more oil in it. So I'm happy that that light comes on because the light didn't come on. Then we'd keep driving that car and then there'd be a major problem. So distress is a great thing. It helps us out. So what do you do when distress comes into your life? Sometimes distress uh, comes from totally outside sources. And when it comes into our lives, it's to reveal something in our heart. It's to reveal how we would respond to something or how we would react to something, how close we really are walking with God. So not that we look forward to distress, we don't look forward to these times, but we ought to use these times wisely. A, a tragedy, a difficulty, a stress thing, uh, an anxiety causer, you're wasting it if you don't let it cause you to lean into God rather than lean away. And 
uh, it's interesting in the story of uh, Mordecai and Esther, they have this moment, we've read about it the last couple chapters, and instead of leaning away from God, they lean into God. And it makes all the difference. They're leaning into God. They're letting their distress drive them to God uh, affects a nation. It affects two, uh, over 10 million people that live in the kingdom. Now, you and I may not have the effect that Esther and Mordecai have, but we do have an effect, even if it's just one other person's life. It is valuable for us to live in a way that points to God. And then we don't regret that kind of thing. So as we look at Esther, as we look at chapter 6, we see God's providence all over. It almost, it almost, seems, it almost seems too unreal to be true. It's, it's just crazy that all this is lining up. But again, a lot of us have had these situations in our life where all the things fall into place very quickly. And we see that happening for Esther and Mordecai. Now, the one thing that uh, really gets Haman into trouble, and we've touched on this a little bit, is this idea of pride. And I want to talk about this a little bit. So we see God's providence. We understand that. Whatever our circumstances are, we want to lean in. We don't we want that distress to cause our relationship with God to grow more. That's what Haman and uh, that's what Mordecai and Esther did. So then we take a look at Haman's life, and we see that Haman is so full of himself that he's blinded, he, he doesn't see clearly, and it causes all kinds of problems. So we want to avoid those kinds of things in our life. So first thing we see is hum humility means to know your place, to know who you are, to know how God has wired you, to, to know what you're about. In Romans 12, 3, it says, don't think that you are better than you really are. You must see yourself just as you are. Decide what you are by the faith God has given each of us. So don't be arrogant. Don't think more of yourself or less of yourself. And a lot of us get ourselves into trouble because we compare our lives with somebody else. And when we compare our lives with somebody else, we, we feel we're falling short. It tears us up even though God hasn't made us to be that kind of person. Now, I'm going to get myself into trouble because I'm going into a territory that I am not familiar with, and that is cooking. And uh, you do not want, when if Cindy brings you something or we bring you something or whatever, you should be thankful that I just drove it there. I didn't have a, anything to do with the creation of it. But let's see how we can do with this. So here are uh, chocolate chip cookies. Let me back them up. Oh, I made them work. What did we say? There we go. Uh, chocolate chip cookies. And, you know, you've got all these ingredients, different amounts. Now, I'm guessing, because I don't think I've made, made you any chocolate chip cookies once in my life. And, uh, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I'm realizing that, you know, one teaspoon of baking soda is awesome. But that's just not, an, that's just not that much compared to two and a half cups of all-purpose flour. So I'm sure the, uh, the baking soda could just get really ripped off. You know, I'm, I'm just a teaspoon, blah, 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 you know, you know. But that teaspoon is so important, right? I'm guessing without that teaspoon, not much is going to happen with those cookies. It's only a teaspoon. And you're sitting over there going, man, I wish I was two and a half cups of all-powerful flour or, or three quarters of a cup of, uh, you know, 
sugar or something like that. I got to be this little teaspoon. No, no, you got to realize that whoever God has made you, whatever your role is, it, it comes into the recipe. And as all the ingredients make that recipe and those cookies magically cook in that oven, you know how all that works and uh, out they come. All those little pieces, you don't want too much, you don't want enough, and that's the same with our lives. Some of us are, and I, I don't want to say just a teaspoon, but some of you are a teaspoon, and that's awesome. We just need a teaspoon of baking soda. You see, i got to keep looking at that list up there because I don't even know what's in cookies. But um, anyway, so, you know, what else is in there? A cup of butter, yeah. See, now I, I would think... I think there probably should be four cups of butter in cookies because I just love butter, but I'm guessing that's not a good thing. So, again, we do that with people. We're all the different or, uh, uh, ingredients to this, this cookie called a local church. And when we all take our roll, take our amount, and put it all together, we make awesome cookies. So understand who you are. Also, humility is more of a direction than a destination. We just keep moving in that direction. We never arrive at humility. We're human beings, and it can creep in around us, pride about. Sometimes you can be proud about being humble. I mean, it's just, it's just you know, it's just the way it is. So we want to move in that direction. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you become more than yourself. That little teaspoon of what it was, baking soda, by itself, I don't know, has anyone ever eaten baking? It probably is not good, right? right? So no, you wouldn't want to, it wouldn't be like the, the sugar would be nice to taste, but the baking soda probably not, right? Uh, so be who you are, and what's interesting, when you are who you are and you mix it up with other people, you become more than yourself. You become a chocolate chip cookie. Woo, awesome. So the idea is you're walking in this direction, not looking for a destination. Humility is more about God's glory, and pride is more about my glory. I want my life to point to God. I want my life to reflect God. I want people to see my life and go, wow, if they think Dave Spencer's nice, it can't be because Dave Spencer, right, because he's married to Cindy, or it's probably because he's trying to follow this God that is so wonderful, and he reflects that. It's not all about me. Now, when we think of glory, uh, just a small definition, you could write uh, a book on this, but I just like to hang on this. Whenever we hear the word glory, I like to think, what does that mean? We think glory, wh what does that mean? Glory is about his power, God's power and his presence. God, who he is, almighty God, and he is present in our lives. So when I think of reflecting his glory, I want to reflect that he's powerful, he's engaged, he's present in my life. That's how I, in a sense, glorify him. And so as we're thinking about that, we need to remember this. If you only look at us, this is Paul writing, you might well miss the brightness. We carry this precious message around in an unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. And so this idea is that we are earthen vessels, other translations say, clay pots, and we carry around this good news of Jesus Christ. 
the Spirit lives in our lives, joins with our lives, and our life is designed to point to the message, to point to the God of that message, even though our clay pots aren't that great, and that's okay. So it's about His glory, not my glory. Next one may seem a little obvious, but humility is better than pride. Some of us may say, well, I don't really have much pride, and we just kind of go on our way. I think you ought to think about it a little bit, because humility is so much better than pride when it shows up in our lives. Solomon writes, pride is the first step towards destruction. Proud thoughts will lead you to defeat. It's better to be a humble person living among the poor than to share the wealth among the proud. It's so much better to be humble rather than proud. So much better to take your life and to surrender it to God. God gives us the power to do certain things, and, and we can you know, get off the rails. You know, we, have that, we have a free will, but every time you, uh, in a sense, uh, pull back and follow his lead, you're practicing humility. And so it's better to be humble. Hammond can't see anything that's going on because he is so stinking proud. And it's his downfall. He's an example of this. So as we're thinking about pride, how do we, how do we kind of take a little inventory of our lives? I got some questions for you, some statements for you, questions that might reveal pride in your life. And uh, you don't have to, I just put them in your notes there, had them put in the notes. So um, these are questions that might help you. Uh, we'll just run through them real quickly, but I would encourage you to reflect on these questions throughout the week to kind of ferret out any pride, any seeds of pride in our lives. Uh, first one is, do you crave attention, honor, recognition, or reward? That definitely describes Hammond. And if that becomes our direction, our, our passion in life, we are moving into uh, a disaster. It's someday going to show itself and it's not going to be good. Uh, do you become jealous or critical of people who succeed? When somebody else, things come together, and you see their life, maybe your next-door neighbor, and you go, wow, they, you know, and then you just, you're just jealous because you think you deserve that. There's a little bit of pride motivating that, making that happen. When, when someone, uh, again, it has something come together, when something good happens, when whatever, when, when their plans come together, are you critical or do you celebrate what's happened in their lives? Um, do you always have to win? Do you always have to win? Do you have to win every conversation, every argument, even if it's just a minor argument? Do things always have to go your way? If things always have to go your way, that may mean that you think your way is the only way, the best way. That reflects arrogance and pride. And we don't want pride. So it's interesting that little statement, uh, humility is better than pride. Duh. Well, here we have places where we are prideful. Another one, do you lack ambition for the fear of falling? failing? Uh, we've talked about Esther taking a step. There was risk in that. Sometimes you and I don't lean into that risk, follow that risk because we're afraid of failing. We, we don't want that. That, that could be a reflection of pride. Sometimes I get nervous about speaking, you know, at a, at a place. And, and why is that? Because I don't want to look like an idiot. That's pride. So 
speak and do your thing and don't have a fear of that, whatever that may be? Do you have a pattern of lying about or hiding your failures? Do the people in your life even know that you've never messed up or do they think you've always kind of done everything right? The reality is they do know you've messed up. They just know that you haven't shared that they've messed up. And it doesn't mean that you, you, know, you want to have a disastrous life with all these problems, but at the same time, you sharing your failures, not hiding those, actually has an impact on another person's life. Sometimes when somebody, you're looking up to somebody and they admit they don't have their life totally together, that gives you hope because you know you don't have your life totally together. So again, your failures, do you, do you try to hide those? Um, do you have a hard time fully acknowledging you were wrong? One of the little things I do when I um, have the privilege of marrying a couple is I have them ask some questions back and forth or say some statements. And one of the statements is, I was wrong. And some people know this is coming. Some people don't know this is coming. But I'm telling you, whether they know it or not, some people have a hard time. It almost like gets caught in their throat. I was wrong. You know, they just, it's just, they just don't want to say that. And uh, everyone kind of laughs because they realize there's something going on there. So anyway, uh, do you have a lot of conflict with other people? If you're always in conflict with other people, you've got to stop and ask why. Could that mean that it's always going to be my way because I think my way is the right way or I just want to do it my way, even when it's not necessarily super right over someone else. I just want to do it my way. And, uh, you know, having conflicts, uh, you know, over things, who's right, who's wrong. Um, Cindy and I have this major problem going on in our house is that uh, the dining room table, she likes it closer one way and I like it closer another way because I don't like to be able to back up into the hut. See, I'm telling you this so you'll be on my side. And she, so every once in a while, I, I come in and I squeeze in there. My dad would say it's because he needs to lose some weight. But I, I squeeze in there and, and I don't fit well and I want to push it the other way. So it goes back and forth. You know, who has to be right? You've got to wait, find out what happens next week. Anyway, all right. Do you honestly fear you are superior to most people? Sometimes we meet people. We can see them in somebody else's life. They think they are better than everybody. And if there's nobody like that in your life, maybe you're the person who thinks they're better than everybody. I don't know. But that's just, just obviously wrong. <laughs> um, do you tend more toward an attitude of entitlement or thanks, thankfulness? Do you, do you really feel like you deserve all this stuff that's happened positively in life? When someone serves you, uh, do you say thank you because you're just being polite, or do you say thank you because you really are thankful? If you feel entitled, it means you think you're a little bit better or a lot better, and that means there is pride going on in your life. Theologian from Great Britain says this, pride is your greatest enemy, humility is your greatest friend. Pride is your greatest enemy, humility is your greatest friend. Being humble brings things into our lives, but being proud takes things away. 1 Peter 5 says this, 5, 5 says this, all of you dress yourself in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
I don't know, my life is heavy enough without actually having God oppose my life. You need God opposing your life? I mean, life is a mess without that. So clothing humility so there isn't opposition coming from God would be a good thing. So I need to review this. I need to ask these questions. I need to see where I might be proud. Next verse says this. So humble yourself under the mighty power of God. Say yes to him. Say yes to him for your relationship with God. Identify that you do have sin in your life, that you aren't perfect, you haven't arrived, and you need forgiveness. We just sang about that. Jesus' death on the cross, his shed blood, means that there's a sacrifice available, perfect, for our sins. So you humble yourself under the power of God, and then you daily humble yourself under his power by following his lead. And at the right time, you will lift, be lifted up in honor. Timothy Keller has a really great statement that I want to be our bottom line, and it's this. Humility is not thinking more of myself, obviously, or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. And if you think of yourself less, that means you're thinking about others. And you're thinking about how can I serve others? How can I put others first? Last week, love God. Love others as yourself. So sometimes, you know, when you don't want to do something, you say, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. You, don't, you stop thinking about not doing it. And then you end up, it's like always on your mind. Replace that thought, replace that attitude with thinking less of yourself by thinking more of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for how practical your word is, how it just uh, speaks to our life. No matter where we're at, it speaks to our life. Uh, we all have to wrestle with uh, humility and pride and how that shows up in our life and how it shows up in other people's lives and how to walk through that. And so, Lord, we, we ask for your help with that. We, we ask that you would help us to have tender hearts so when the warning light goes on in our dashboard, we actually see it and take the right action. We just don't ignore it. Father, if there's anyone here that has never said yes to you, has never received, had the forgiveness of sin applied to their life, I ask that even in this moment they'd be reaching out to you as you're already reaching out to them, and they would ask that you would join their life and they would decide to demonstrate humility by trying to follow you the best way in life. And then for us who have known you for a while, we ask that uh, humility would be one of the rhythms of our lives, not just so it keeps us out of trouble, but so that our lives can be a message to somebody else's life. People in our world need to see the good news, the gospel in action. Help us to be that action as we follow your lead. Thank you for all of this in Jesus' name.